All right, y'all, we're in the book of James. So something you need to know about Cross Life, just because we, we do have guests here today, and I, I know that we have uh, people who listen uh, through our podcast, so this is just kind of good to understand that there's something that we do. It's called expositional preaching. In other words, we take a book of the Bible and we just preach and teach Scripture as plainly as we can. I don't believe that whether it's myself or Andy or I'm excited because Bo and Jared are also going to be preaching in the upcoming months. We believe in sharing our pulpit at Cross Life because God has, has uh, equipped and blessed more than just me to teach His Word. And we want to raise up uh, disciples who are equipped to do the work of ministry. And so that's, the, that's what we do here. All right, so as part of that, we believe in expositional preaching so that whoever it is that preaches, you know exactly what's going to be preached. And what we preach is Scripture. And so if the words are there, that's what we preach. If the words are not there, we don't preach it. And so that sometimes leads us to very difficult texts. Um, but some, most times what it does is it leads us to, I hope, a right understanding of Scripture. Just here's what Scripture says. And there are so many verses that if we did not do expositional preaching, we would just miss. Because they don't fit into the topics. And they're not, they're not beautiful and sexy to the world. Because it's got to be here and it's what everybody wants to hear about. What it is for us is this is the most attractive thing that we as a church can uphold. And that is the Word of God. He moved men to write it, he sustained it, and we are here. Every word is profitable for teaching and preaching and reproof, so that we can be mature in Christ. So here's what James chapter 2, verses 1 through 13 says. I'm in the ESV version. My brothers, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, You sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, You stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has, God, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are you not, I'm sorry, are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? If you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. For he who said, do not commit adultery, also said, do not murder. If you do, do not commit adultery, but do murder, you have become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to one who has shown no mercy. And y'all get this, mercy triumphs over judgment. So why, why are we preaching James 2, 1 through 13? Well, because... It naturally follows James 1, through 20, or 1, verse 27. We just move through it. We need every word that God gives us. Now, here's something I want you to be aware of, is it may be that as we read this one, because, you know, a couple of weeks ago it was, Know this, my, my beloved brothers, let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. And we're like, oh, okay. And that one's kind of hard for some of us. 
right? And then it even said that, um, that we need to be doers of the word, not hearers only. This is in 22. And because if we hear the word and we don't do it, then we're deceiving ourselves. And we've talked about that. And that's pretty convicting. And then last week was if anyone thinks he's religious and does not bridle his tongue, but deceives his heart, the person's religion is worthless. And that's pretty heavy because we, we struggle with controlling our tongue. And then you get to religion that is pure and undefiled before God is to visit the orphans and the widows in their affliction, keep one, uh, oneself unstained from the world. So it's that selfless service, and, and that's convicting. And so there's all these heavy things in James, and then we get to this, and we're like, oh, good, I don't show partiality. Like, this is the easy week, right? So it may very well be. It may be that this is not a heavy conviction the point of what we do is not to convict. The point of what we do is to uphold Christ and preach His Word. However, I would say that we need to consider that it may not be for the now in our lives, but the not yet. It may very well be that, that things in life change or we get put into a situation and we need God's Word within us for whenever that moment arises. So it's not for where we failed, but it's to keep us from falling. Okay? It may also be that what we receive from James chapter 2 is not really for us, but it's so that we can give it to somebody else and help them through something that's going on in their life. So we always want to do that. We always want to be equipped with the Word so that we can equip others. We are a Great Commission church that as we go, we make disciples. So, so this falls into your toolkit one way or another. I have tools in my toolbox. I don't even know how to use them. But I have them because I saw somebody else use them as they were working on a project. I'm like, who knows, maybe one day. And Chaz doesn't know, but there's still some that haven't been opened. Okay? But I have them for whenever I do need them. God's Word is like that. Okay? Sometimes it's for right where we are, and sometimes it's for where we're going to be. But we don't know where God is leading us. So if you're looking at it, you're like, great. I don't, I don't have any partiality. I'm pretty good at not judging others. That may be true, but it may also be that we have blinders on and we're just not aware of it, right? Because our hearts are deceitful. All right, so here's what we have in, in James. In James, oh, water bottle, sorry. In James, we have an expectation. He's going to say, hey, I expect you not to do this. And then he's going to give an example in case you don't understand what he's saying. And then he's going to explain why that actually is. This is kind of different than everything else that's come in James. Most similar to it is whenever he said that we need to count it all joy whenever we have trials of various kinds. And then he spent about 18 verses showing us different ways that this might come into play. And then he blasts through some really hard sections in verses 19 through 27. But here he really pauses. Okay, One thing to keep in mind is that, that, that James is writing, it tells us up in verse 1, to the 12 tribes in the dispersion. He is writing to Christians who are completely scattered. So it's not like he's writing to the Corinthian church and saying, you have this issue you need to address. He's not writing then to the Roman church or churches, that whether they were gathered in, in synagogues or, or houses and, and wherever they are. In there. He's not writing to them saying, here's your one issue you need to fix. He's writing to all Christians who are scattered. And I feel like if he's spending time on this one, to all tribes as they are scattered, all believers as they're scattered, this must have been a pretty widespread problem. Because... He's addressing as much as he can. And he says it's to the brothers. He's not writing this to the world. We can't expect the world to hold to the things of Christ whenever they don't love Christ. But we who say that we love Christ, we must hold things to the, to the, hold true to the things of Christ. And so, my brothers, he says, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. So the expectation is, you and I, we don't get to show partiality. 
We can't. This all follows, by the way, verse 22 of, there, of chapter 1, but be doers of the word and not hearers only. Why? Deceiving yourselves. So if we hear a great word today and then we don't go do it, then we really deceived ourselves. Remember, all the great listening habits we can have, all the intake means absolutely nothing if there's not an outflow from us. So hear this, show no partiality as we hold to the faith. So what it means is this, is that if conviction does not lead to doing, then we're deceiving ourselves and, and there's not fruit. But as we are rooted in Christ, there will be fruit that bears itself in our lives. But in a world of shallow faith and, and Christianity that looks a lot like the world, you and I need these correctives because authentic faith will prompt genuine action. And the genuine action for us is that there is no partiality. Now here's what, here's what I just want to draw your attention to. My brothers, show no partiality, look at that next phrase, as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. There's a lot of really cool things that, that we won't have time for this morning. But one of the really cool things is that he's not pointing to a general faith. He says that here's what you need to know as you hold the faith, that there's a personal conviction, a personal walk with Christ. So the next 12 verses then are going to stem out of that. So as you hold the faith, the next 12 verses are for you and for me. Right? If we're rooted in Christ, if we are holding to the faith in Him, then our lives will begin to look this way. But then there's also this. Look where it says, um, in our Lord Jesus Christ, comma, the Lord of glory. Now, different translations translate that final part totally differently. I mean, radically differently. Um, in fact, if you want to get down into some of the original language, some of, some of the translations even take out the Lord of, and it reads like this, my brother, show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the glory. Like the name of the Lord Jesus Christ in James in this context is the glory. It reminds me of Hebrews 1, 3, where it says that he is the radiance of the glory of God, the firstborn of all creation. I mean, it's like in, you go to Hebrews 1, 3, and there's the glory of God, and then Jesus Christ is the radiance of the glory of God. So he's the glory of the glory of the glory of God. He is, he is this exponential radiance of the glory of God. And that's what James says for you and me. That's where we're going to have to humble our hearts is that as you and I hold the faith in clinging to Jesus Christ, the glory is what it comes down to. As you and I cling to glory, our lives have to look this way. Therefore, show no partiality. Okay, so then we're like, fine, what does that mean? Okay, James gives us an example. This is verses two through four. He says, okay, so for example... If a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say to him, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Now, his, his example is very clear, very simple, very applicable to every generation. But if... We would never do this, right? We would never do this in cross life. But, but if new people came in that we didn't know and, and we looked at them and we're like, that looks like someone who should probably sit over here by me. They look like they should probably sit over there by them. And we start looking at how people are dressed and how they present themselves and we start making distinctions amongst ourselves. It's partiality. It's favoritism. Where James says that there should be no partiality, he could have said that there should be no favoritism among you. Look okay, at what he actually says. Okay? 
So to break it down, it's very simple, but, but that uh, a man who comes in, uh, what's it say, in, in, with a, wearing a gold ring and fine clothing, other translations in the original meaning is more like a, um, a mini gold, how to say, um, they're a gold-ringed man. That's what it is, a gold-ringed man. In other words, the original language basically said that if there's a man who comes in, he has gold rings. He's, he's flashy because he has gold rings on all of his fingers. In other words, there's a show of wealth in him. So if this gold-ringed man comes in and you make that distinction, he didn't say it's good or bad. That's how you and I like to think. Well, that's, that's good. That's bad. We, I don't think we ever like are driving down the road and, you know, we... I've just got to use Trent's example here. Um, and somebody cuts us off, or they're driving, driving poorly down the road. I don't think that we ever respond and go, mm, that was evil of me, right? And I don't think that we then respond in an action and go, that's pretty righteous. I'm, I'm, we don't think of evil and righteous. We think of good and bad, right and wrong. And I think that that's okay to a certain degree. It's not good enough for James because James is always going to push us to righteous living. Look what he says about it. Look down in verse 4. He says, if you do this, if you, make dis, uh, if you make determinations and you show favoritism, have you not, Scripture says, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? To show favoritism, to show partiality is not bad. It's not unfortunate. It's not something we just need to work on. James says it's evil. And the reason for that is simply that you and I have no hope apart from Christ. I mean, we have been declared just. We have been declared righteous. We have been made new. We've been washed um, symbolically in the baptism, but we've been washed spiritually and fully by Christ. And then so whenever someone comes in and we start to say, oh, well, I don't know. Here's how we're going to classify. James says that's not just bad. That's not unfortunate. That's evil. Because it goes contrary to what the gospel did. So, the weight of favoritism, y'all, is, is this. It's evil. We've got to call it what it is. So, for those of us, connecting back to verse 1, for those of us who are going to cling and hold to the faith of the glory, then we cannot cling to something that's evil. There should be no partiality amongst us. Okay, now he's going to explain why this is such a big deal. And there's two main reasons. Number one is that it rejects the poor whom God has already approved. So to show favoritism in this context rejects the poor whom God approves. And I'm going to give you some verses. Um, but see, this is a really simple, plain teaching, but we need to understand the depth of it. Um, he's, going to ex he's going to explain to us why that matters. Now, here's what I've found as I've worked with students for years, is that oftentimes the action that they do, they do not understand how it translates on the other side, right? So I'll, I'll have a student who, who just says something in class to a teacher. To them, it's not a big deal. Teacher's frustrated, teacher feels disrespected. Student just keeps on going. In fact, this happened a, a few weeks ago. I said something to a student, he responded to me and then just carried on with his conversation. And so I pulled the student down after everything was over, one-on-one, -on -one, pulled it aside and I said, do you understand that you completely disrespected me about 37 minutes ago because I was keeping track, okay? And, uh, and it was genuine. It was, what, what do you mean? Like when? And I said, I asked you to do this. You basically blew me off and just kept talking to your friend. And the look on his face 
was just absolute horror. He did not mean to disrespect me. He didn't understand that his words and then the position from which I was speaking to him as a superintendent to a student, he did not understand in that moment what I was truly asking him to do. And he did not understand in any way that what he said translated into disrespect. And I found that to be true with most of the students and most of the people that I deal with, is that they speak and they act. And then whenever you just step back and coolly say, do you understand that that, that came across in this way? Most people don't. We sometimes disconnect the action that we intend with the impact that it actually makes. That's what James is going to do here. He's going to say, just because you think it's a simple action, here's what's actually going on. Here's the impact. And the number one impact you and I need to know is that whenever we make distinctions of the, of the rich and the poor, and we give favor to the rich, and we give not as much favor, or we, or we cast the poor aside, then it rejects the poor whom God has approved. That's what James tells us. So look at verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers. Has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? And he goes on and says, but you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honorable name by which you were called? Okay, so keep in mind, most of James's recipients, they're actually, they're, they're scattered, they're in dispersion. They're also poor. So as he's writing this to to not make distinguishments between the rich and the poor and to favor the rich over the poor. He's writing to poor people mostly. We covered several weeks ago that however poor it is that we believe we are in our American society, we are actually the rich of the world, right? But he's still writing to us, and he says, most of you are poor, and yet you are judging against the poor. And as you do it, you're rejecting those whom God has loved. Here's what, I've, here's what I fear. Because I, I live in Fort Smith, and I get on and off the interstate, right? And, and, and you see a lot of foot traffic on the road. I fear that the poor for us, that they've kind of become like a white noise. Right? They're just there. They kind of, it's just part of life, and we go on, and we don't really pay attention. Y'all know what I mean by white noise. You can turn on a white noise machine to help your kids get to sleep. I don't know if it really works, um, but, but it might, okay? But... But they're kind of like this wide noise, and you don't really pay attention to the noise. It's just kind of that and then you're not aware of it, and then you're able to kind of start shutting down. And I fear that the poor for us have become the white noise. We know we're going to pass them on the interstate exits. We know we're going to see them walking up and down the road. We know that, that there are other agencies that can take care of them. And so what begins to happen is because we're not aware of them anymore, well, then we don't regard them anymore, and we're not allowed to do that. We are called to serve. And so, if we're not aware of their presence, we're probably not aware of our partiality against them. That's, I think, where we can kind of take some root. You know, as, we, as we cling to the Lord of glory, as we cling to the one who is the radiance of the glory of God, then you and I have to remember that God is deeply concerned and deeply loves the poor whom he has created. He creates the rich, he creates the poor. He causes the rain to fall on both. All right, so beyond these verses, just remember that, um, that, even, that even God did not come as the rich. Right? The, the God of glory, the one who's enthroned, he could have come in any capacity to this world, and he didn't. He could have come as the high priest. Now, I know that Hebrews says he's now our high priest, but I'm, I'm saying he could have stepped in 
to the Levitical priesthood, and he could have been the one who ruled the temple if he wanted. He could have come as a king. He could have been born into wealth. Instead, what he was born into was a lowly manger to a poor family, and we know that they were poor based on the sacrifices that they give in Luke. They gave the poor families appropriate sacrifice. So the king of glory, who needs absolutely nothing, who speaks stars into existence and holds everything together by the power of his might, that God stepped into this world as a poor baby in a poor context to a poor family. Jesus even tells his disciples that the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. So Christ was poor. So think on that, that Jesus Christ stepped into the world from on high, and he didn't just stoop to us, he became the lowest among us. And so therefore, James is saying, don't forget that God so loves and so identifies with the poor that he became like them so that he could serve even them. All right, here's some other verses for you. Listen to what Hannah says in 1 Samuel 2, 7 through 8. This is, this is just to, to kind of rally our heart around the poor. 1 Samuel 2, 7 through 8 says, she says, He raises up the poor from the dust. He, God, he lifts the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. That's what our God does. What we disregard, he honors and he exalts. Proverbs 14.31. And by the way, y'all can, can flip. We can do some, some Bible Olympics here and go back and forth as quickly as possible. Proverbs 14.31 says, Whoever oppresses a poor man insults his maker, and maker there is capitalized because it's talking about God. So whoever oppresses a poor man insults God, but he who is generous to the needy honors him. That's honors the poor man and honors God. Listen to Deuteronomy 15, 7 through 8. So this is going all the way back to the Old Testament, just so you see that this is not some sort of radical new social justice gospel that's come in. This was in, the, in their law. If among you, Deuteronomy says, if among you one of your brothers should become poor, if any of your towns within your land that the Lord your God has given you you shall not harden your heart or shut your hand against your poor brother, but you shall open your hand to him and lend him sufficient for his need, whatever it may be. And then in Deuteronomy 15, 11, it says, For there will never cease to be poor in the land, therefore I command you. You shall open wide your hand to your brother, to the needy and to the poor in your land. Now God cares for the poor. Just a little bit more. Luke 14. Y'all turn to Luke 14. We're going to do these last couple, last few together. Luke chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. This is Jesus teaching on it. And in Luke 14, verses 12 through 14, Jesus says, He said also to the man who had invited him, When you give a dinner or a banquet, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or rich neighbors lest they also invite you in return and you be repaid. In other words, don't just invite the people who can get back to you, right? That's the, that's the context of it. Instead, what he says, but when you give a feast, you invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed because they cannot repay you, for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the just. Okay, so as we're talking now, 
about not showing partiality, about just serving those. Isn't it interesting, real quick, that the sin of partiality completely follows verse 27, the religion that is pure and undefiled before God, the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep one self unstained from the world. And then he follows it with, with show no partiality. Right? See the context there? Okay. So in Luke 14, Jesus is saying that when you have a feast, invite those who can't get back to you. Why? Because God is just and he'll repay you in his time and in his way. But that's the hope we cling to. But don't just keep serving those who can serve you because then your reward, your reward is just in this world. Okay, so, so how might you and I do this? Because I don't think we really give feasts um, anymore, but, but we also live in a time of COVID, right? So, so can we have a feast? I don't know. Um, I am looking forward to, I hope within a few months, we're going to be able to start doing our fellowship meals again together after church so that we have that rich time. But we, we put it on hiatus while, while COVID was... I was going to say spreading, and that's the wrong word. Um, but while COVID was heightening, we, we put our fellowship meals um, on hiatus. But, but I will say this, that when you can, I think that the table in our homes is one of the most powerful evangelical and outreach things that we can do. To open our home to those who, yes, are dear friends maybe, but also to those whom we want to start pouring into and sharing life with. But when you begin to eat together, fellowship becomes rich. And whenever fellowship becomes rich, you have opportunity to love and serve in a way that you can't if we just go out to a park. I'm not saying that's not good. I'm just saying, how can you and I put this into place, what Jesus is saying in Luke 14? We can open our table to our neighbors, right? Just throw a couple more hamburgers on the grill and invite them over to get to know them because there can be a richness in that fellowship where you have the opportunity to share and serve in the love of Christ you don't have to invite them to a building to proclaim the gospel. You just start sharing the gospel where you are, and it becomes powerful. Okay, James 1.17. So flip back to James. This is another verse that, uh, you know what, we've, we've been covering James 1.17. Go ahead and flip past James. Get to 1 John. <clears throat> 1 John chapter 3. Remember, we're, we're on the, why is this so important? And it's because it rejects the poor. And we, I'm giving you some scripture. There's plenty of scripture that deals with the poor and God and the rich and God. But I think 1 John 3.17 is a good one for us to also remember. Because this isn't James. This isn't Moses. This isn't Jesus. This is just another Christian voice. Another book that we can pull from. But if anyone has the world's goods, it says in 1 John 3, 17, but if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? That's tough, right? Because we see the need. Or remember, going back to my fear is that we don't see the need anymore because it's become a white noise for us. It's always around us, so we kind of become desensitized to it. Okay, now let's get back to James. Here's, here's James's thing that he says about it. In verse 5 again, Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are rich in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So we, we see God's heart for them. Now look at verse 6. But you have dishonored the poor man. Man, that's interesting. James says that, that whenever we give preferential seating and treatment Here's what we've done. We've dishonored the poor man. 
You and I live in a world where we give honor where honor is due. Right? So we see someone who's done well and we honor them. We see someone in a high position, we honor them. And scripture says that the poor deserve honor. And whenever we don't give him the love and the treatment that he deserves, we have dishonored him. And I don't know, to be quite honest, if we preach much about honoring and dishonor whenever we preach about the poor. So if we prefer against them, if we show favoritism against them, whether we are aware of it or we're not aware of it, then we have committed evil is what James says, and we have dishonored the poor man. Why? Because God created the rich, he created the poor. The same energy and love and affection that went into fearfully and wonderfully knitting you and I together in our mother's womb is the exact same care and treatment from the exact same God of the poor. And so whenever we do not serve and love the poor, whenever we do prefer show favoritism against them, we are offending the maker who put his same image on them as he put upon us. If we say that we were made in the image of God, so were they. Now, one unintended consequence is that we might have some sort of um, anti-favoritism at the end of this, where we're like, well, we've obviously been favoring the rich and, and not the poor, so we're going we're gonna to favor the poor now and, and not the rich. And I don't think that that's the point of it either, right? It's to bring a balance to say, that the poor and the rich deserve the exact same honor, especially amongst the church, especially amongst those who've been bought by Christ. Proverbs 29.7 says this, A righteous man knows the rights of the poor. A wicked man doesn't understand such knowledge. So a righteous man knows the rights of the poor. Church, you know what the rights of the poor are? The rights of the poor is that he is worthy of just as much honor as the rich. That's a scriptural teaching all the way throughout. All right, so then James just says, in case you're a little slow or dense, here's another side. Isn't it the rich who drag you into courts? Isn't it the rich who oppress you? Then why in the world show them favoritism? And he doesn't follow that up with anything else. He moves on to his next point because we understand that. Right? The poor aren't the ones who are oppressing the brothers and sisters in Christ. In that context, that's what he's talking about. Okay, second thing is this. The other reason that this is evil is because it breaks the royal law of Scripture. This is our, our last main point. It breaks the royal law of Scripture. It's what he says in verses 8 through 13. If you really fulfill the royal law, and we're going to look at what that is. If you really fulfill the royal law according to the Scripture, here it is. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. He's like, then you're doing well. If you really do it, you're doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of it all. Now, there's some richness here we're going to push into here in just a second. For he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. And if you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you're still or you become a transgressor of the law. So speak and so act, he says, as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty. For judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown mercy. And mercy triumphs over judgment. You do need to see this. Go to Matthew chapter 22. Matthew 22, verses 34 through 39. You get fake bonus points if you already know the passage and the context. Guests, don't worry. We don't have real bonus points. You don't get badges or anything like that. I just wanted to clarify. Matthew 22. All right, and Jesus is speaking in Matthew 22, verses 34 through 39. 
Okay. But when the Pharisees heard that he had silenced the Sadducees, so when the Pharisees heard that Jesus had silenced the Sadducees, they gathered together, and one of them, a lawyer, asked him a question to, look at this, to test him. They really wanted to test him and see what he would say. Teacher, which is the great commandment in the law? And he, Jesus, said to him, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. All right, he gave two, though, right? They said, what's the greatest law? What's the, what's the greatest commandment? And it seems like he gives two, but really it's, it's just a twofold, right? So you and I need this from Jesus. Here's what he Here's what all of the law, all of the prophets, is what verse 40 said. All of the Old Testament boils down to these two things. Love the Lord your God with all of who you are and love your neighbor as yourself. And they go together. Now here's, here's what I think happens in our lives is we love part one of that law. Oh Lord, help me to love you with all my heart, with all my strength, with all my might. Help me to give myself to you today. Captivate me with who you are, and yet we really don't pray, Lord, help me to love my neighbor as myself. But what James does is he brings that all back together, and he's only echoing what Jesus has already said, that to love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your mind and all your soul, another verse would say, a strength will cultivate a love of your neighbor and serving them as yourself, because we cannot love the Lord and hate our neighbor. It's impossible. So then what's happening whenever we seem to be so adamant about loving our Lord and there's a disconnect right here? I'd say it's absolutely that. There's a disconnect. We need the Lord to make us aware of who we are, take the blinders off so that we can love our neighbor as ourselves. Love the first part, but y'all, to love the Lord and to love your neighbor, all of this is the fullness of the Old Testament and the prophets and all of the prophecies and all of the law. It comes down to that. What does the Lord want of you and want of me? Love him supremely and serve others sacrificially. Like that's all of it right there. And that's what Jesus told them. And that's what James is saying. He says that if we say we keep the royal law, we do well. And then he says, but if you show partiality, you're not keeping it. You just kept part one. You didn't keep part two. The royal law includes both. All right. So probably comes down to this. Like, what's, what's the big so what of it all? What's it, what's it really matter? I mean, I'm going to get to the judgment seat of Christ, Ricky, and I've been declared just by Christ. I'm going to be able to, to walk right into heaven and have all the glory. I'm going to be in his presence. Like, why does this really matter? Because you and I are transgressors. Right? Look at verse 10. For whoever keeps the whole law, right, but fails in one point, has been guilty of all of it. Okay, so he's talking about the royal law. So if we love God supremely, but we don't love our neighbor as ourselves, so, and we realize that we violated with this one, he says, but if we, if we fell in one part, we're guilty of it all. So we're like, okay, fine. Like, I'm just down to two, though. Like, there's just this one law I broke it, so what's the fullness of it? And then he says, for he who said do not commit adultery also said do not murder. If you don't commit adultery, but you do murder, you become a transgressor of the law. What does that mean for you and I? That the one who just said, Jesus, that we shall love the Lord supremely and we will love our neighbors ourselves is the exact same God who said, do not commit adultery and murder. So if we hold to the Ten Commandments 
and if we love the Lord and yet we still don't love our neighbor, we have transgressed the entire law. Like that's what it all comes down to, that the same one who spoke the royal law is the same one who gave the systematic law. It means that, that this favoritism is a sin, and it also means that sin is sin, and whenever we commit sin, then we break covenant that we have with God. So, we're not serving them. What's the big deal? We're breaking covenant that God has expected of us. The same God who established the, same ten, or the Ten Commandments is the same God who says, love your neighbor as yourself is what I mean. Okay. And then verse 12, this is just really cool for us to dwell on as we, um, it says, he says, therefore, here's the solution. So speak and so act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, for judgment is without mercy to the one who has shown no mercy. Look at those last four words, mercy triumphs over judgment. Y'all, I believe that, that all of James 2, 1 through 3 is not about social justice and developing a program for a church where we go serve the poor and needy. I think that what it's really doing is he's saying, hey, be very careful and guard against this that you kind of become blind to those whom you were called to serve. They're all around us, is what Deuteronomy says. There is a richness there. But at the core of James's message in, in chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, he says that partiality and favoritism is a hard issue. It's something that's, that, that we have to deal with, and a heart that has trans been transformed by the gospel cannot strive and show, strive and show partiality. That there can be no partiality there. Here's what I think is cool about those last four words, that mercy triumphs over judgment. You realize that that's why we sit here today, because mercy triumphed over judgment. That's why we had baptisms this morning, because mercy triumphs over judgment. It's why you and I will go serve the poor, because mercy triumphs over judgment. He said, James says, that if we do not show mercy, we will not receive mercy. But remember this, mercy triumphed over judgment. Y'all, mercy has already triumphed over judgment. It's by the great love and grace and mercy of God that you and I could even sing songs to a holy God this morning. It's why we can sit here and even open the word. Like the mercy of God towards us is great and rich. We were the poor. If it weren't for the mercy of God, then what hope would you and I have had? Because you know the world that you and I live in, we live in a comparative world where we're always looking at this person and that person. And if God was to look down and see us in comparison to everyone else, then what hope would we have except of his great mercy and love with which he loved us? He has shown great mercy to those who were dead in their trespasses, enemies of God. It says that we were anti-God in every single, we were not pursuing him, and yet the mercy of God pushed into our lives. And where there was great judgment, there was greater mercy. And where you and I see the world, and there can be judgment, there is a greater mercy that overwhelms it because of Christ within us. When we love God supremely, we will, by the mercy that we have received, we will mercifully treat those as we would want to be treated. We will love them. We who were lost have been brought into the fold. Greater mercy has triumphed over the great judgment that stood against us. We weren't, we weren't bad people. We were just wayward. We were sinners deserving of God's wrath and destined for hell. And because of the great love with which he loved us, he says, where there is judgment, here is a greater love than that, and here is my son. And he's going to come as the poor, and he's going to make you rich. That's what he wants from us. The Second Corinthians church tells us this. From now on, therefore, for us, we regard no one else according to the flesh, even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Everyone that you and I encounter, 
Thank you, Trent, for this reminder Wednesday night. Everyone that you and I encounter is one of two people. They either are a saint who is loved by God and by Christ, and their judgment's already been paid, so we readily forgive and serve. Or they're the lost, and they are worthy of our concern and our pity, and therefore they need our mercy. But as you and I sit here today, and as we go from this place, you and I will encounter one of two people all throughout the day. And may he who showed us mercy be glorified by the mercy that we show others. W.A. Criswell has a, a story which I won't read to you. I just love the conclusion. He says the ground is level at the cross. There is no rich. There is no poor. It's all level at the cross. And so we all come before it. And he gave himself freely. His blood falls on all who call upon his name. Now let's pray. Lord, the... The truth of, of James is challenging in this. That it's just an expectation of those who are Christians that they will serve and love the poor. You even tell us throughout the Gospels that there will be a day whenever we will give an account to you. And that there will be many who say, we did all these things in your name. We did ministry. We cast out demons. We did miracles. We professed your name. And you will say, depart from me for I never knew you. And the same same account says that you will turn to those and you will say, thank you for serving me whenever I was in prison and whenever I was sick and whenever I was weak and whenever I was a stranger. Because as we do it to the least of these, we do it unto you. Lord, I, I hope that what we just did is not a scholarly study where we just studied some words on a page. But Lord, I pray that your Holy Spirit works within us and through us and leads us to live lives that really do not just love you, but love our neighbors ourselves. And it will be uncomfortable, and it will stretch us. But the Great Commission said that as you go, make disciples. Lord, as we go, it may very well be that the mercy that we are giving and that we are showing is part of the ministry of reconciliation that you've given us. You making your appeal to the world through us about you Lord, may we be obedient, and Lord, may we be humble enough to recognize what only you can show us. Lord, show us, show us our hearts. But Lord, as we, uh, as we get ready to sing this final song of reflection, I pray this. Lord, may we glory in the gospel. Because where there, where there may be conviction, <laughs> there is a cross that is greater. Mercy has triumphed over judgment. Lord, may we sing of the wondrous mystery. We don't understand all that you've done, but we are the recipients, and that should cause us to praise you and glorify you louder and for all of eternity. Help us to do that. Amen.